and two, and I've been moving through three. And this morning, I've asked uh, Teresa to read through all of Genesis 3. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up. It's also going to be up here on the screen. So Teresa, come on up and take us through Genesis 3, 1 to 24. Tough act to follow. So for you adults, this is Eve. This is serpent. (laughs) And this will be Adam. Now the serpent was more crafty than all of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, and the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
Okay, we're going to move through verses 14 to 24 this morning. So last week was a bit of the cliffhanger. Um, God pursues and seeks Adam and Eve who are hiding from him. And here we get to some curses and consequences. These are pretty famous passages, but it's very important to read through them carefully so that we're really making sure we're not just filling in some vague, um, some, some blanks in our own mind if we're overly familiar with the story or we've got it from second or third hand accounts. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So to crawl on your belly, to eat dust, that's an ancient way of referring to someone who has an elevated position and they're now demoted to the lowest uh, position. And so uh, ancient texts would talk about kings being cast down. Scripture uses that language. God even threatens certain people in authority that I will cast you down. And eating dust is an idiom, much like our, uh, someone bites the dust. It, it just means that you're going to be reduced to a place of humiliation. And so God is cursing the Nahaj, this shining supernatural being, and saying, you were in an elevated position within my kind of um, heavenly spiritual council, and now I'm going to cast you low. I'm cursing you. Now, when the language of cursing comes up in the Bible, it's really important to just parse what that means versus how curse can be used in a bunch of other contexts. So I'm quoting here from John Walton, who wrote the NIV application commentary on Genesis, which is probably one of the top five resources that I've been using through this series. It's really, really good. And he talks here about, he just says, has a note on blessings and curses in the Bible. He says, to bless someone is to put that person under God's protection so that they can enjoy God's favor. And to curse someone is to remove that protection and favor. To curse someone does not mean to put a hex on someone or something or to change its essential character by magical or mystical means. It does not mean to bewitch or to put a spell on something. And one of the clearest examples is David's speech to Saul in 1 Samuel 26, where men have incited Saul against David, and David says, any man that has incited Saul against me is cursed, meaning they are now removed from being protected by me, and they are deprived of God's favor. So when we're hearing about blessings and curses, it's all about God's protection and having a favor that allows life more or less to go smoothly. When God curses something, it's about removing that so that that um, sort of that synergistic smoothness, that momentum can't be built, and, and you experience life just as a series of uh, maybe not walls, but maybe speed bumps. There's just a continual challenge to it. Verse 15, God is still speaking to the Nahaj, and he says, the serpent-like creature, and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Very mysterious passages. There's a passage has a wide interpretational lens, but most Christian scholars in history have said there's a lot going on here in terms of setting up this continual spiritual warfare struggle between the daughters of Eve, humanity, and those who will follow in the footsteps of the Nahaj, which is the army of angels that will give their allegiance to Satan. But it goes from plural, 
your offspring versus your offspring to singular heel here. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. And that's a, that's a tip-off that there's something interesting happening because you've gone from a, referring to a, a group of people to one particular person that is the focal point of this enmity. And this has sometimes been called the proto-evangelion, the prototype gospel. It's the first allusion to the fact that God is going to defeat the powers of evil and death by sending a singular he, a person, who in, at this point in the story, obviously very mysteriously, is going to do battle with the serpent, and they're going to kind of trade death blows, but this person is going to destroy the works of Satan. And if you know the story at all, you fast forward through Scripture, and this coming one, this seed, this offspring of the woman is ultimately re- revealed to be Jesus. Right? Galatians 3.16 says, The promises that were spoken to Abraham were promised to his seed. And Scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, meaning Jesus. Romans 16, Paul writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, referring to Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, and that is the devil. So we'll, get, we'll come back to this kind of near the end, but this is this little illusion that in the midst of this cursing, there's this promise given in a sense to everyone, but it's also a condemnation to the serpent that your days are numbered. This enmity, this back and forth, this spiritual warfare isn't going to be a perpetual karmic struggle between yin and, yin and yang that'll just play out forever. Your days are numbered. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. This is where knowing Hebrew is really helpful. And if you don't, like me, having a program, you can hit a button that says, make me look smart. You hit the button and it parses all the Hebrew for you. And it's really, really helpful because there's a lot going on in this text. First of all, the text is redundant if it simply means what it seems to convey. I will greatly your pains in childbearing with pain you will bring forth children but that's not the best translations of those words the back half of that can be read pretty um, directly with pain the word is esib which means a sharp pain you will give birth to children you will give birth yalag you will birth a child but the first part is actually a broad term that really means the entire process from conception all the way to child rearing in pain, isabon is a different word than eseb. It doesn't refer to sharp pain. It's a mirror word when God will say to Adam, in toil you're going to bring forth fruit from the ground. And it has as its root this idea of a anxious toil. It will be difficulty, but it's going to be fueled with an almost continual sense of anxiety. You won't be at rest in this task. In anxious toil, you will conceive, you'll give birth, you will gestate, you will give birth, you will raise children. So this consequence for Eve is not just about the labor and delivery process. It's about the anxious toil that she is the mother of all living will pass on to subsequent mothers. That there's this anxious toil that sort of will pervade the heart of mothers. 
Is that valid? Amen. True. Yeah, right? It doesn't just end once the baby's born and the doctor says, oh, you have a healthy baby girl. In, in, in some ways, new anxious toils begin at that moment. And so um, motherhood is this continual sense of anxious toiling to raise a child. And then God says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, this is really, really controversial, very, very interesting. Let's look at the first part. Your desire will be for your husband. There is almost no consensus among Christian Jewish scholars um, about what this means. And that is because the word desire here is only used in two other times in the Old Testament. The word desire, uh, suqua, which means an urging or a longing kind of a, um, and it's not a feeling that you can just forget about. It, it kind of comes from the very heart of who you are. And there's lots of debates about, ooh, how do we interpret this? Is this like a, a positive thing in some sense or a negative thing? Like, how could this be a positive thing? Well, when this word is used in the Song of Solomon about these two lovers who are attracted to each other and one has the desire for the other, this is that word that's used. But in the next chapter, when God warns Cain about sin crouching at his door, God says, you got to be careful, Cain, because sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to have you. So the only other times this word is used in the Old Testament, one is uh, connected in a very positive way to sexual desire and attraction, which is a good gift from God. But the first time it's used in Genesis 4 is this picture of um, sin as this dark animal which is going, whose desire, whose primal instinct is to take down Cain. So is this something sexual in nature? Is it relational? Is it inferring to some kind of domination? And again, I read tons of, I spent probably 40% of my week on this verse. And there is just not consensus. But what's very clear when you look at it in the context of all of these consequences to Eve and in this next part, he will rule over you. What's very clear, clearly being introduced here, is that within this most fundamental relationship between the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, there's going to be a pretty significant distortion. And Adam and Eve will no longer relate to each other the way that God intended. And that's alluded to in this next part. He will rule over you, masal, to, there's no way to soften this word, it, it means what it, we might infer it to mean, to have dominion, to have authority. And again, there's three, well, there's kind of two primary ways you can take this. This might mean that, um, so some Christians would say they see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 a God-created hierarchy um, of authority where God, man, woman, and that what's happening here is there is an exaggeration of an already existing hierarchical differentiation. Not in terms of both made the image of God, both equal before God, but difference in terms of authority. And what's happening here is there is a amplification, a distortion of that hierarchy. Others would look at it and say there, there are lots of verses in Genesis 1 and 2 that would imply a fundamental equality, including one of higher, on a, at a hierarchical level. Male and female, they're made in the image of God. Adam is taken from Eve's side. We talked about the implications of that in terms of equality. And so what is being introduced here is that because of, of this deception and this sin, 
a new point of corruption is going to enter the fundamental dynamic between uh, husband and wife. And it's not spelled out in great detail, but what is alluded to here is that the, um, the female will desire to dominate the man, but the man will continually frustrate that by being able to dominate. And again, there's lots of um, commentaries that are trying to wrestle through. Is that at an unconscious level? Is that at a very conscious level? No commentator says that this is a, um, this is justification for spousal abuse, right? Like I can rule over someone, oh, because the Bible says so. I get to have dominion and authority. There's no Jewish scholars who ever follow that line. There's no uh, Christian scholars of any note that I have been exposed to. But again, what's really clearly, I mean, this is something that, you know, if, if you're not sure what this means, just sit down with your husband and wife, just talk about it. You'll figure it out. Um, no, I'm just joking. That might be a landmine. Okay. <laughs> but I think the core point here is that this fundamental relationship, which was designed to be shalomic, full of peace and harmony, and where there was supposed to be an ease, and it was certainly not supposed to be the focal point of a battleground, will now be, has now been distorted at a very, very fundamental level. And it's going to be a central source of frustration for, um, for wives, for Eve's and for wives here. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat, dot, 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 just hit the pause button. Notice what God says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree and the consequences follow. This is not a proof text for why you as a husband do not need to listen to your wife, right? This is something much richer, much broader. Eve is given to Adam as an Azar, which is a powerful helper. That word is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God, the way that God helps us, not from his position of inferiority to us, but he is a more than competent super helper, which leads us, who leads us into the kind of life God wants for us. And that's the gift that Eve is to Adam. And so part of any, I would hope we all understand this, part of any godly, wise, pleasurable marriage is that both husband and wife listen to each other and both husband and wife really weigh the convictions and opinions of each other seriously that you're not operating in marriage out of a egocentricity that says, well, I feel really strongly about this and because of the fact that I'm a husband or wife or however you frame it in terms of who wears the pants in the relationships, this is the, this is the way it's going to be. That is um, not what God is calling out Adam for. What's being called out is Adam's allegiance, right? This is referring to the fact that Adam knowingly chose Eve and the deception of Eve and went with her rather than stay true to God. Remember, in the story, um, you can infer certain things, but what's very clear is that only Adam is given the command not to eat from that one tree, but to eat freely from all the others. Eve knows the command. Jewish scholars would say that's because Adam told her. But in 1 Timothy 2.4, it says, Adam wasn't the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, we read that, and without the context, you might think, well, that's kind of throwing Eve under the bus. Adam wasn't the one deceived, but the point is actually the opposite. The point is Adam bears more responsibility than Eve because he got the command directly from God. 
So Eve was deceived, but her sin was born of kind of being tricked. Adam's sin was way worse because he knew fully what he was getting into. He heard God's command. He was there when the Nahash is speaking to Eve. Sometimes commentators will say um, that Adam wasn't present. And just at the end where it says Eve gave the fruit to Adam and he ate, that he just randomly showed up on the scene. Not true. Every time Nahaj refers to you, you will be like God. It's in the plural. Adam's there the whole time. He's just silent. Adam hears God. Adam hears the servant. He sees his wife being deceived. The wife's like, yeah, maybe this isn't a bad idea. And Adam, with full knowledge, not being deceived, says, yeah, I'm going to go with your plan. And God says, it doesn't matter who is in your life. They might be taken from your side. They may be bone of your bone. If they're leading you down a path that God says not to go, you don't listen to them. But because you listened, it wasn't because of the fact that she was his wife or the fact that he listened to her. He just gave ultimate authority and obedience to a plan that directly contravened what God wanted. Eve was deceived. We, we read that in the rest of Scripture. It's not that she's not a sinner, but the bigger indictment always falls on Adam because he wasn't. He willfully and fully and knowingly sinned against God. So the condemnation is not that he listened to his wife, but that he failed to prioritize God over even his central commitment uh, to Eve. And this is the consequence. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat plants. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So Adam now has to make his life in the same word that Eve has to, anxious toil. Nothing's ever going to come easy as it relates to eking out an existence and extracting food from the ground. In, gar in the garden, um, Adam still has to work. He still has to be a gardener. But again, with God's blessing, things are going to come rather easily. There's still effort, but it's not toil. There's not a consistent sense of frustration that is now going to exist. And then God says your days are numbered. Even if you are successful in getting this harvest, you won't be able to just live perpetually. You're, the end game for you is dust. You're from dust, and to dust you will return. Now, I think it's interesting to note, this is a very fascinating and potentially controversial um, kind of thought experiment in terms of the text, but it wouldn't have been controversial. What I'm about to say wouldn't have been contro controversial to an ancient context. So try and think about it through that lens, and then you can kind of bring it into our um, our current cultural context and kind of play with it a bit. But certainly in ancient cultures, the presumption would have been a very, very clear delineation of gender roles and labor roles. The woman is, is um, going to be in the homestead raising children. The man is going to be in the field doing kind of the grunt work of farming. And that's why most cultures thought about at least the core sphere of responsibility for men and women and it's interesting that if you look at the consequences for their sin, at least from this text, it looks like the consequences come to bear on sort of these central callings of what it means to be a male in the image of God and what it means to be a female in the image of God. Now again, of course, we're speaking about generalities. I'm not trying to say that these gender roles are always appropriate and that they hold fast across time and space. I'm just simply saying ancient readers would have understood this to mean the woman who's 
primary creational role is to child rear, she will find that central task to be toilsome and difficult. And the man's central task to provide and extract food and livelihood from the ground, that that central task is going to be frustrated. Now again, we don't want to use this text to enforce really rigid gender roles because if you know anything about ancient Israel, women did a lot of farming, men did a lot of teaching and childbearing, but there's this, um, there's this sort of this, uh, I mean, think about Genesis 1 and 2, right? You have these strong dichotomies, heavens and earth, light and dark, form and filling, male and female, and if you think about it, and again, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to be intentionally provocative in terms of the metaphor, but but an ancient person would hear this and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, man forms the house, builds the house, and women fills the house via relationship. Interior world, exterior world, the building of the interior culture of the home versus the exterior culture of society. You're seeing these central tasks being a, a deep level of frustration and friction being introduced such that no one is off the hook. Man and woman together and at a societal level in the home, outside of the home, is going to experience the consequences of sin. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments for skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so because of their sin, Adam and Eve experienced total disruption along those four levels of relationship. A harmonious connection with God is massively distorted and twisted. And with each other, distorted and twisted. And with their own sense of identity and interiority, distorted and warped. And their own sense of calling and vocation into the world. Anxious toil. So sin hasn't just affected their spiritual lives or a part of their life. It has affected the sum totality of who they are, who they believe God to be, what they're called to be in the world. Two flyover lessons for Genesis 3. When God prohibits something, it is for our good. This is the central deception of the Nahaj. The reason why God would say no to this is because he's holding something back from you. He can't, he is not good, he cannot be trusted. He wants to remove you from the good life. Follow me, I will give you access to the good life. That's the central temptation of Satan. And we have to understand when God prohibits something, even from our perspective, when we can't imagine why it would be advantageous to listen to God and to not do this thing, which it seems to us would bring a lot of joy, pleasure, freedom, you fill in the blank if we did it, this is a really important story to remember. Disobeying God, going our own way, deciding to treat God's commands as suggestions will always lead to disaster. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it will. The wages of sin is death. And number two, when we reject or ignore God, the consequences, I shouldn't have said maybe are severe. They can be severe. They're often severe. And they're often uncontrollable, right? You can't contain the effects of sin. You can say, well, I've got the secret sin and like I kind of got it under control. Uh, this is something I only engage in over here in this part of my life and I've kind of quarantined it. Like in the rest of the parts of my life, 
pretty solid, but over here, and that's not the way sin works. Sin's like a virus. You can't localize it to a certain part of the body. It'll spread. And we see this here where if you would have asked Adam and Eve and said, well, what are going to be the consequences to this sin? They might have said, oh, I don't know, this or this. They, they, weren't un- they, they, they were definitely not braced for the full dimensionality of their personhood to be affected and corrupted because of this. And that's an important lesson for me to remember when I'm in a place in my life or a place of temptation where eh, I'm kind of playing fast and loose with sin maybe or maybe kind of being like, well, it's not that bad or like, yeah, I'm sure I'll have to say sorry to God and make it up for it somehow, but I don't know. Like, and we're trying to like um, justify it because we can kind of think, well, we'll be able to control the outcome or it's not going to be a big deal. It's really important to ignore any voice in your life, whether it comes from within or from without. Any voice that would seek to reframe what God calls a sin, something that's kind of small or insignificant, not a big deal. You should be very leery of those voices in your life. So one of the most severe consequences for Adam and Eve is that they are expelled from the garden. God creates this world, puts this garden in the middle. The cosmos is a temple for God. The Garden of Eden becomes like a holy of holies. Man and woman are acting as high priests to bring God's glory into the world. And now this presence and this communion, this full connection has been ruptured. And one writer says, although Adam and Eve continue some sort of life outside the garden, it's a shadow of the fullness of life inside the garden where they had enjoyed intimate fellowship with God. And now the full cost of sin is apparent. It's not just an unquiet conscience. It's not just squabbling with your dearest spouse. It's not just pain or the drudgery of daily toil. But the fundamental issue and result of sin is the separation from the presence of God and ultimately physical death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so the end of chapter 3, and this is hard for us, but imagine if you were just, hadn't heard, you, didn't, you have no other understanding of what's coming down the pipe in terms of the storyline. And verse 24 is where you end. Like that's a, that's a massive cliffhanger. And the question that it holds out is, are Adam and Eve going to go back? Can they get back? Can we? Can you and I? Because if you haven't noticed it, there's really big echoes in the story for all of our journey where God gives us, gives us life, gifts us with life, says, I love you, I want to bless you. And in all kinds of ways, we take the bait of the evil one. We intentionally sin. We say, thanks God, but I'm going to do things my own way. Thanks for giving me life. Now I want to be the author of my own life. I don't need you anymore. I don't want you anymore. And then we experience that disruption. So can we establish reconnection with this God? Is it possible to experience kind of recommunion after an initial communion is broken because of outright rebellion and pride and spiritual arrogance? And there is a clue that in the text, there's actually two of them that leads to a pretty hopeful answer. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to say the number out loud really quick. No thinking about it too much. How many curses are pronounced in chapter 3? Three? One? Two? Four? There's actually only two. Who do the curses fall on? 
What's that? The ground is one. What's the first one fall on? The Nahaj, the snake. Adam and Eve are not cursed. You ever noticed that before? They bear the consequences for their actions, but they are not cursed. They are not permanently removed from God's blessing. Now, that's important because it shows you that even in their rebellion, even in their covenant-breaking actions and rejection of God, he is still going to make a way for them to reestablish connection. Verse 15, I mentioned that. There's going to be a coming one that is going to overthrow somehow mysteriously by taking a mortal wound. He will crush the head of the Nahaj. We know that's Jesus as the story plays out. But how does Jesus gain the victory? Well, you might say, well, he died for our sins. That would be the evangelical, you know, Coles Notes version. That is true. But what does that accomplish? Well, notice in verse 21, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It's the first sacrifice in the Bible. First time in the Bible we ever hear of an animal being killed. And it's at God's hand to do for Adam and Eve what they couldn't do for themselves, right? The moment they sinned, guilt, shame, disruption enters in. They try and cover themselves with fig leaves. They try and hide from God. God actually does provide a covering through a sacrifice. So right away, this big plot line in the Bible of how God will use a sacrifice to cover over sin and shame and the alienation that comes from that is right here. Romans 4, 7, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. We sing songs all the time about how the blood of Jesus covers us. And this is part of what that means. It means that in our spiritual nakedness and shame, that can be covered in a total way. Not from our own works, not from putting things together, becoming more religious, becoming a good person, by putting on the clothing of Christ. But there's another dimension to Jesus' death on the cross that you're, well, I shouldn't say you, I shouldn't presume, many people are less familiar with. And that is in Galatians 3, it talks about how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. Because in the Old Testament, it's written, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. See, Adam and Eve are not cursed because this coming one at some point in the future will bear their curse so that they don't have to experience the full weight of punishment and consequences for their sin. This coming one will, but the story is better because the coming one won't just absorb the, the curse on their behalf. He will give them the blessing that was owed to him as the perfect human. See, Jesus takes upon himself on the cross the curse. He voluntarily allows himself to undergo full exposure to the judgment against sin and evil without any of God's protection or favor. So when he's dying on the cross in his humanity, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a complete removal. And in his full dimensionality, the curse is placed upon Jesus because a holy God has to punish sin. But God has to figure out a way, how do I punish and destroy sin 
without destroying sinful people. Because I love people. They're made in my image. So I have to do the right thing, but I've got to do it in the right way. And so the second person of the Trinity from eternity passes, I will go, I will sacrifice myself as a, full, as a fully human, be a perfect sacrifice so that they can what? So that they can regain access to the tree of life. The tree of life is talked about in Revelation. That when there's a new heavens and a new earth, the tree of life is there and people are free to eat of its fruit. Jesus absorbed the curse so that you could receive the blessing. He subjected himself to the tree of death so that you could have access to the tree of life forever. See, that's, what part of, that's a big part of what makes Christianity very, very unique. And it's not just like other religious systems because it proclaims that Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Humanity, in a thousand ways from Sunday, tries to cover their own sin and shame and spiritual nakedness, but only Jesus can do it. In our strength, we're powerless to avoid the consequences of sin, the ultimate being death and separation and judgment under God's righteous decree. But Jesus' blood has the power to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and in him, the curse can be undone, and we can be restored back to a place of blessing and living in this perpetual state of alienation and anxious toil doesn't have to be your way of life. Starting right now, we can, by crying out to Jesus and saying, forgive me, cover me, I want you to be Lord of my life, I need you to forgive me, I need you to make things right, not just in my heart or my spiritual life, the sum totality of who I am, I need your healing and forgiveness and redemption. The Bible says at that moment, God's spirit inhabits us and God begins to do a new work of redemption. And he begins to exchange anxious toil with joy and being filled with his spirit and new purpose and peace and love and joy and gentleness and faithfulness. And then that continues on forever so that when we die, it's not judgment that's awaiting us, but receptivity into the grace of God where there is a tree of life and pleasures forevermore. And all of that is made possible, not because we got really serious about our sins and started to pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, started going to church more, praying more, reading the Bible. None of those things save you. What saves you is by yielding your heart to Jesus and saying, I know that you are the one that even Genesis 3 talks about. You are the great conqueror of sin and death and evil and the Nahaj, and I want to put my trust in you. And so we receive that as a gift. It's not something you earn, but once you receive it as a gift, now the eyes of your heart are truly open to the grace and majesty of God. And you get to go on the adventure of the rest of your days here on this side of eternity saying, how do I please God? How do I glorify God? How do I bless my neighbor? And how do I enjoy that process forever as God begins to bring coherence and harmony back across all these levels of dysfunction? And so where the story ends is in a cliffhanger, is there a way back? We discover absolutely there's a way back for anyone, regardless of the nature of your trespass, sin, rejection um, of God. But that path isn't a process of religious ritual. It's a person. And that path is Jesus. Let's pray.
Jesus, the glory of Christmas, I think needs to strike my heart in new ways. Thank you that where there is no way, you make a way. And right at the start of these stories of human failure and human pride and human arrogance, what is very clear is that nothing can overwhelm your grace and your love. That we, in our state of sin, even at the deepest and most depraved levels, are not beyond your touch. And I just pray for everyone here um, that they would recognize that in you they can be clothed with the new righteousness. They have access to the tree of life in you that we would experience a new level of connection and community by your grace. Thank you for thank you for this gospel and may we hear it with fresh ears this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.